Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're we're going to talk about the shofar and uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, all the all the good things. And and uh, let's just start with um with the shofar. Um, this is something that kind of came to me this year, and uh, I was just trying to think about it, uh, just kind of on a deeper level, like what's what's actually going on when the shofar is being blown. <clears throat> And uh, basically, it it uh, it took me to this um, it took me to this this Rashi. Uh, this thought took me to this Rashi, uh, which is you know Rashi. A lot of times he's a master grammarian, and so um, a lot of times, uh, and I, I put myself in this category. Uh, he'll give incredibly uh, detailed analyses of like just which dots are going in which letters and which dots are being left out of which letters. And then at the end of this incredibly uh, erudite and esoteric uh, lesson of grammar, he goes on to the next point. And you're like, wait, I, I, I'm not sure I got that. Like, I'm, I'm sure that was incredibly valuable because you're Rashi and you spent a lot of time trying to explain exactly what the dynamics of the, of the verses of the Pusik, but... But I, I wasn't left with a with a conclusion as to how I'm supposed to, um, you know, see everything differently. But then every once in a while, you'll see a, a Rashi where he'll go into great detail in terms of the grammar, and then all of a sudden the skies open and you see something absolutely different. And that's the case uh, in terms of Moshe hearing God speak in the Mishkan. Now we know the Mishkan; it's often translated as the Tabernacle. I, I don't find that any more enlightening. I'm actually more... What's a tabernacle? I mean, but anyway, it, that's, the, that's the prototype of the holy temple that was later built in, in Israel, the, the Beis HaMikdash. Now, by the way, before we go further, let's just tell you a, an amazing Torah from the, uh, from the Imre Noam, the Jikov Rebbe, which is that the gematria of Beis HaMikdash, holy temple, is the same gematria as, as, as Rosh Hashanah. So Beis HaMikdash and Rosh Hashanah are the same. And this is very, this is very amazing. And, and it works on so many different levels. But let's just, let's just develop that for a moment. And then we're going to get back to Moshe hearing God speak in the, in the, in the Mishkan. And, and, and how it connects to Shofar in a moment. Um, and Rosh Hashanah, as on all holidays, we're saying, uh, And that's a very special blessing. We say that... Um, Thanking God that we that He kept us alive to experience this this new time, so th- it's a it's a very beautiful blessing, and um, and so we say it on all the holidays. But I was thinking that the Shehachianu that we say on Rosh Hashanah is actually has a has has a different dimension to it, and um, because you see we say the Shehachianu blessing for another reason also when we acquire something new of great value you say a shehechianu. And so on Rosh Hashanah, the world is being recreated anew. And God is handing us this brand new universe. And so perhaps the shehechianu that we're saying on Rosh Hashanah is not just thanking God that we reach this point in time, but thanking God for this enormous, valuable new possession that he's giving us, which is this new world, this new universe. Now, when God created the world, our rabbis teach that he, he started with one physical point of matter, the size of a mustard seed. 
and then blew that out, expanded that, until he finally said Shaddai, which means enough, and that became the physical sort of parameters of the known universe. Which remarkably parallels the Big Bang, and this is thousands of years before that. One point of matter exploding or expanding till it becomes the whole universe. But the rabbis go further. They tell us exactly what that point of matter was. That initial point of matter was the foundation stone of the Beis HaMikdash. Now, isn't it interesting that creation begins, we're talking about on Rosh Hashanah, the creation of the universe. Beis HaMikdash, we just said, is the same gematria as Rosh Hashanah, which is talking about the origin of the universe. And so God takes this first point of matter and expands it and makes the whole universe come from this initial point of matter. So if this initial point of matter was the foundation stone of the Beis HaMikdash, what does that mean this universe is? One huge Beis HaMikdash, one huge holy temple, one huge dwelling place for God. So that's where we are in Rosh Hashanah. That's where we are these, these whole 10 days. Well, all the time, actually. There's a, uh, a tshuva, a letter. I, I never remember whether it's the, uh, the Rashba or another rabbi that sounds very much like the Rashba. <laughs> I used to not remember whether it was this rabbi or that rabbi. Now I can't even remember the other rabbi's name, so I'm sorry. I, I'm sure it's now, for sure it's him, right? But anyway, the point is, is that he says that when the, the, uh, the kahanim, would, would serve in, in, in the Mishkan, in the Holy Temple, they would wash their hands and their feet before they went in. And, and that when we wake up in the morning, um, the first thing that we do is we wash our hands. And he said that our washing of the hands in the morning is basically we're all like Kahanim, and we're all entering into this world, which is one big Holy Temple, in order to do God's will. So here you see on a daily basis this idea taken maybe a step further, almost quite literally, that this whole world is one big Beis HaMikdash. So, so now let's move back to this idea of the shofar, this, this grammatical construct that I mentioned from Rashi. So, so it says that when Hashem spoke to Moshe, he would speak to him in what was called the Oel Moed, the tent of meeting. And a, a cloud would come down and... This was where the, the, the Holy of Holies was, and you have the, the, the Ark with the, with the golden angels with their wingspan and the, the tablets of the, of the, of the Luchos, that, which, which had the Ten Commandments on it, the Torah on it, were in the, were in the Aaron, were in the, were in the Ark. And it says between the wingspans that Moshe would hear Hashem's voice. And Rabbeinu Bechaya says something absolutely beautiful. He says that the distance between the two wingspans where Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher, would hear God's voice emanate is about the same size as our heart. So in other words, when we hear God speak, so to speak, that it really sort of like the chamber that, that, that we hear it through is our own hearts as well. Because that's basically the same size as that opening between the two wingspans where, where Moshe heard God speak. But, but we haven't gotten to the rush yet. We haven't gotten to the point yet. But now we're ready. So what does it mean? It says, it says if you look in, in the English translation, or if you look in the Rashi, which is telling you what, 
what the what what the Hebrew is saying, what the Torah is saying, it says, and and Moshe heard God speak to him. Okay, so that's how we all understand it. So nothing revelatory there. That's that's pretty much what we know. But then here comes the amazing part. Rashi then brings the Targum Ankelos. And the Targum Ankelos says something radically different. And it's very subtle, but I want to learn it with you the way Rashi says it. And, and then we'll get the point. So, so, so it says that, that God would speak. It would use the word speak. God would speak, right, to Moshe. The Targum Angelos says something different. He says, no, no, no. Grammatically, it's not the word speak. Grammatically, it's actually the word speaking. Okay, so what does that mean? So the way you actually have to read it is, God was speaking and then with Moshe. So how is that different? He says, no, 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 listen, you, you know, you, you got to get it. We're not there yet. God was speaking. Now just stop for a moment. God was speaking with Moshe there. Meaning to say, and then he, Rashi clarifies it further. God was speaking to himself. And Moshe was there to hear God speak. That's what it's saying. So Moshe would stand there in the tabernacle and he would hear God speaking with himself. And then Moshe would then relate that conversation to the Jewish people. And by extension, the whole world. So that's, that, I mean, I've got the chills right now. That, gives, that can give you the chills. And, and, and that's all based on an understanding of the proper grammar of, of the Torah. So do you see how radically different that is from God talking to Moshe to God is speaking with himself with Moshe present to hear. So now I wanted to relate this thought to the chauffeur. Because you see, what's going on with the chauffeur? So Hashem You see, Rosh Hashanah is all about making Hashem king. Making Hashem king means an acknowledgement that the entire world is inside of Hashem. That Hashem saturates all of existence. See, people get all wigged out when they hear the word God. They don't know what to make of the word God. God seems something other or big or it's bigger than me. It's bigger than the world. But how does it relate to anything exactly? But that's, that's, it's troubling. You see, the whole idea is that God is infinitely close and God literally saturates all of existence and then exists dimensions beyond this world as well simultaneously. So wherever you go there, God is there. So, so, so making God king is an acknowledgement of his absolute omnipresence. You know, let me say that thought maybe more pithily. I heard from uh, Rabbi Gedalia Gurfan. He, 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 he explained it to me this way one time. He said that, you know, people say, what's the difference between a polytheist and a monotheist? 
So a polytheist is someone who believes in many gods. So they say, God is in the mountains, God is in the sky, God is in the trees, God is in the, the river. A monotheist says, the whole world is inside God. Very, that's uh, a very different understanding. And now you understand the absolute closeness of God. See, I heard Reb Shlomo say something one time that, that changed my life, really actually, quite literally. He said that everybody understands intuitively, just on their own, how far away God is. But the biggest Kiddush Hashem a person can make, the biggest sanctification of God a person can make, is to relate how close God actually is. Right? And more, more than ever, our generation needs to hear that message. Because God, unfortunately, has become a total abstraction for most people. People say there's, there's football and there's hot dogs and there's concrete and there's God and there's Ohio and there are Republicans and there are, you know, libertarians, right? And wait, wait a second, go back like three. What, what did you say? <laughs> God is not something on a list of things that exist. God is the sum total of all of reality and all of existence. And we exist within it. Okay, so now this connects to the chauffeur. So when we declare God king on Rosh Hashanah, we're talking about the absolute kingship of God. So what came to me, and what I think is going on in a very deep level, is that when we blow the shofar, we're hearing God speaking with himself. Meaning to say, God is having a conversation with our souls. And what is our soul? Our soul is a piece of God. So it's God is speaking to our souls, and if our soul is a piece of God, what does that mean? That means that God is speaking with himself, and we're there to hear the conversation. And I thought of an illustration of this that just blew my mind. I talked to a doctor, and you have to imagine this if you're, if you're listening, if you're not here right now, but the windpipe begins basically... You know, a few inches down, like, like if you know where your solar plexus is, like a little bit above that, a few inches above that, this is where your windpipe begins. I was talking about this with a doctor over Rosh Hashanah, because I, like I had a thought, and I wanted to know, is this right? And he goes, yeah, it starts right here. And then I said, well, how wide is the opening of your windpipe? And he says, well, it's about that wide. So about the, the circumference of the opening of a chauffeur of the small place of the chauffeur where you blow. And then we know it's smaller on the bottom and bigger on the top. And then I went, oh, wow. You mean like, like that? Right? You mean we have anatomically a chauffeur actually built into our body? Right? The windpipe starts below, and then the opening of the mouth of the chauffeur is like the opening of our mouth. And here's sort of like where our heart is. Here's where God is speaking to us. Here's, so to speak, where our soul is, because God blew life into us. So here's our soul, and here's, so to speak, Hashem outside of us. And so it's God's conversation with Himself with our soul that's going on. 
So, so what happens? What happens when the when the shofar is being blown? And by the way, if you think, well, oh boy, this is all going on Rosh Hashanah. We already had Rosh Hashanah. You know, I wish I knew this before Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> you know, but remember, everything is building up to Yom Kippur, and the very last moment of the Yom Kippur service is one final shofar blast. Right, and hopefully we'll all be there to hear that because that's like sort of like the climax of the whole thing, and so that big chauffeur blast. So we we still have chauffeur coming up, we still have chauffeur coming up. Um, so now I want to talk about the dynamics of chauffeur a little bit more, and I'm, I'm drawing from the teachings of Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, one of the biggest rabbis in the world, and something very uh, something very awesome. He points out, he points to a teaching, a couple of teachings not, not perhaps that well known. One is that, um, that when, when Avraham went to sacrifice Yitzchak, right, that it says that Yitzchak's soul actually flew to heaven. Okay? So on some level, and we're talking about a, a very spiritual level right now, um, Yitzchak actually was sacrificed uh, in this very sort of metaphysical way of understanding it, right? And then Yitzchak's soul returned to him. And are you ready for this? Rabbi Moshe Shapiro says that, that Yitzchak then said the blessing, Baruch Hashem, Elokeinu Melcholam, Mechayei which is, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who resurrects the dead, that he said that blessing over himself. Now, with this in mind, you can understand why <coughs> is the second blessing in Shemona Esrei. We know the first blessing of Shemona Esrei correlates with Abraham Avinu. The second blessing correlates with Yitzchak. So why does the blessing of the resurrection of the dead comes second? Because that's Yitzchak's blessing, because Yitzchak said it over him own, his own self. Not only that, but when Tachias Hamesim comes, when the resurrection of the dead on a mass level comes, and by the way, just so you know, we're not talking Kabbalah here right now. We're talking Judaism 101 right now. Because it's an absolute tenant of Judaism, as basic as any tenant of Judaism, eating matzah and Pesach, you know, any, any tenant of Judaism, that the dead are going to be resurrected. You know, that's, that's, that's considered not only basic, but, but we're, it says that there are issues about a person's afterlife if they don't believe it. I mean, that's how essential it is, okay? And by the way, there are many, many teachings about this. It, for some people, that might sound like very way out. It's, it's not so way out, if you think about it. Um, I'll give you just a couple of quick things, just in case you're trying to wrap your mind around this concept. Um, we've got cloning today in science. You can take something that was dead, and you can take some DNA, even DNA from stuff that was extinct or, or thousands of years old from fossils, and you can bring it back to life. So even on a science level, right now, it's not considered that really... Um, that amazing, actually. Not only that, but if you think of, the, the Gomorrah says, 
gives the example that if you think about when you plant seeds, what happens? You plant a seed. Imagine that's like a person's body for a moment. That's the parallel they're making. It disintegrates underground, and then something sprouts up. New life sprouts up through the ground. So the Gemara says, look, you, you, you think is, is difficult or, or, or abstract? It happens trillions of times a day. Not only that, and this is more logic-based, but I, I love this. I think this is just, just gorgeous in terms of just, you know, just thinking. It says like this, you know, the Gomorrah says, and this is in, in Sanhedrin, by the way, as, as was the last thing, in, in Chalik, the last, uh, the last parak, that if, um, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you start with, uh, what's the greater miracle? Making something out of something or making something out of nothing? Well, making something out of nothing is, is way bigger. And by the way, it, it, just a, a related teaching, which, which I love very much, which is that, you know, the laws of Shabbos um, are based on the construction of the Mishkan, the, the construction of the tabernacle. And we know the tabernacle, the Mishkan, was a microcosm of the world. And it says, and also a microcosm of a human being, by the way. And each person is a microcosm of the whole world. So all these things overlap and interconnect. And so... And, and that's how you have the teaching. If you save one person, it's like you save the whole world. Because each person is a miniature universe. Okay? So now, and it says that God rejoiced when he made the Mishkan like after he created the entire world. So, so we base our laws of Shabbos, what we can do and what we can't do, on the building of the Mishkan. Because on Shabbos, so to speak, it's it's it's... You see, six days out of the week, we're constructing the world, right? And on Shabbos, there's an element of perfection that's in the world already. We don't have to do that work anymore, okay? Not on Shabbos. So, so now listen to it this way. You see, really, 39 categories of work, which we're not allowed to do on Shabbos, which parallel the work that we would do in building the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, 39 is kind of a weird number. Why shouldn't it be 40? 40 is a nice round number. You've got lots of 40s in Torah. So why isn't it 40? Because the 40th type of labor is making something out of nothing. And only God can make something out of nothing. So God says, you know, you don't have to worry about that 40th category. <laughs> these 39, try not to do these. You can do the 40th category. You know, you're not going to be able to do it even if you try to do it. So, so don't worry about that. So that's why we have 39 categories of labor on Shabbos that we're not supposed to do instead of 40. Okay. But now let's get back to this idea of making something out of nothing. So this gets back to the to resurrection of the dead as explained in the Gomorrah. So, so, so if you've got a dead body, all right, you already have something. So God brings the something back to life. Okay. But before a person was born, a person was nothing. So God first made something out of nothing because you didn't exist at all. So the Gomorrah says like this, if God can make something out of nothing, which we were before we were born, how much easier it is to make something out of something. So you think that resurrection of the dead is hard? Resurrection of the dead is not hard at all. Because God already demonstrated that he did the far harder thing. So this is easy compared to that. 
Okay. Now, at the time of the resurrection of the dead, and this is the period after Mashiach comes, and by the way, this is the period when all of reality changes. You know, people tend to have a bit of fuzzy logic, and they're not being so scholarly or exact. So I just want to put this out so that you, you, you just are thinking clearly uh, according to our tradition. When Mashiach comes, that's going to be a very great event, and we're all waiting for it, and God willing, it should happen right now. So that's what we want. But that's not the resurrection of the dead. That's a stage before the resurrection of the dead. So when we talk about the actual transformation of reality itself, that's where the world becomes this more spiritual realm. That's by the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so that's a later stage in the timeline, just, just so you know. So by the resurrection of the dead, there's going to be the blast of the shofar. So we're getting back to shofar right now, and we're getting back to what we're supposed to be thinking when the shofar is being blown, and what this whole time is, because we're in between the two blowings of the shofar from Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So this whole time is really the time of the blowing of the shofar, okay? So, so that's, since that's the time when we have to realize that we ourselves are being resurrected. That this time during the year, there's a resurrection of the dead going on and it's talking to each of us. That, that we're, we're the ones. And, and, and now we have to say the, the, the classic Kutzker Torah, which is just so great. He says it's a very great miracle to resurrect the dead, but it's an even bigger miracle to resurrect the living. Right? See, that's, that's what we're talking about right now. That's what it's about right now. This is about resurrecting the living. And, and I got to tell you a Torah, which, you know, is, this is a life-changing Torah, I think. It has been for me. And it's also from the Kutzka Rebbe, you know, not, not, not surprisingly. So there's a line from the Medrash Rabbah. It's either, I always forget, it's either in Kahelis or in Shir Shirim. And it says the following, uh, he who grows old is like an ape. Okay, so if you think about it, it's a little bit troubling. It's, it seems to be insulting older people, which, and we know that our, our, our tradition re- reveres older people. And in fact, there's actually a halacha, it's a mitzvah, that if an older person st- enters into the room, you have to stand up, or you have to at least rise from your seat. That's important. You, you have to just know to do that, even if the person is not impressive to you at all. In this day and age, if you make it to that age, it's impressive. You know what I mean? That alone signifies a level of accomplishment that has to be acknowledged. So, so anyway, what does it mean a person who grows old is like an ape? So the Kutzka Rebbe points out that an ape that its, its nature is to imitate someone else. And in fact, in English, if you go to Webster's, to, to ape one's gestures means to imitate one's gestures. So this is very interesting, because if you think about it, this teaching is probably at least a couple of thousand years old. And in modern English, the word to ape means to imitate. 
So that means that this phenomena of, of apes copying your gestures has been known in cultures around the world for forever. Okay? So the Katsukarebi says, so what does it mean to grow old? To grow old means to imitate yourself. It means that at a certain point, just to flesh it out, a person consciously or unconsciously says to themselves, this is who I am. Or, you know what? I more or less have it down. This is me. And then they go for the rest of their life imitating who they once were. And that is the definition of old age. So old age actually has nothing to do with a numerical value at all. A person can be 10 and be old, and a person can be 90 and be young. It's just whether or not you have, and this is, believe me, this will never be a conscious thought. This will be an unconscious thought. This will be something that a person settles into without realizing it. Old age begins when you become an imitation of who you used to be. And you just go throughout your days just copying who you used to be. So the challenge in terms of resurrecting the living, of making the most out of these days, are to look at who you are now and to ask yourself, to what extent am I just doing what I did before? Or if I have certain goals, what am I doing differently if I have these goals that haven't been accomplished yet? What am I doing differently now to accomplish them? Because I might just be copying a person who had goals. <laughs> But you know what? Goals are okay, but accomplishments are better. You want to accomplish your goals. So at a certain point, if you want to accomplish your goals, you have to look at your goal and say, new? You see, in other words, it's not enough to just have the goal anymore. You see, because when you had the goal initially, that goal wasn't a goal. That goal was an accomplishment. Because it was an accomplishment to have that level of aspiration. So that in itself was a milestone and an achievement. And then it sticks around because, look, I can't change the world and everything like that every single day, right? You know, you've got to give me some time. But at a certain point, oh, oh, that's never going to get done, is it? Because I've already celebrated the achievement just by thinking of it. <laughs> right? These are, these are actually heartbreaking thoughts that I'm telling you right now. But hopefully if we, if we realize them in, ta- in time, we can get ahead of the curve and take them to the next level. You know, I'll tell you something, a true story, which is, <clears throat> if you're a writer, really anyone who has goals, it's, 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 it's a chilling story. 
So Truman Capote was one of the greatest literary masters um, uh, uh, in the modern period, a, a consummate stylist. Um, and then he had sort of another incarnation, which was his, um, his personal life. You know, apart from his actual writing and his personal life was something very, you know, bizarre. You know, he had this sort of cartoony kind of uh, uh, aspect to himself um, in terms of being a, a socialite. And a lot of it was, you know, a, a conscious invention. And, but whatever it is, whatever his intention was. But anyway, at a certain point, he stopped writing. And it was a great loss for literature. And he had this huge level of uh, writer's block that basically lasted for the rest of his career. And they sort of, I read a biography that was trying to analyze, like, why did it happen? Why did it happen? And, and one person floated this theory, I don't know if it came from him or for someone else, which was he was a master storyteller and he would tell stories at, you know, at social gatherings and parties and all the rich and famous wanted him to be at their parties and their tables because he was so much fun to be around. He was such an amazing storyteller and things like this. So at this point, the, the, probably the most popular show on television was the Johnny Carson show. And he was a regular guest on the Johnny Carson show. And he would get up and he would be a guest and he would tell stories and people would be absolutely delighted. And wherever he would go for weeks after his appearance on the Johnny Carson show, people would pat him on the back and tell him how great he was and how funny it was and everything like that. And he said, you know, I used to spend in a room by myself hours. And if you, if you, if you like his writing, I mean, you don't have to like his writing, but if you're actually a fan of his writing, you, you, you know the, the, the truth of this statement. He would say, he said that he would spend, I don't know if he said hours or it may not have been hours, but that, that's my memory. Hours deciding where to put a comma in a sentence, right? Because he was so sensitive to the rhythm of the words on the page because he was like a, a painter, you know? He would spend that much time figuring out where to put a comma in a sentence, right? This is like hard work. This is like you're really like, breaking your brain over a piece of paper in a, in a quiet room, right? And going for months and months or perhaps years without anyone congratulating you because you're working so hard on this project and no one's seeing what you're, what you're up to. He said, now I could go and I could tell a couple of funny stories on television. Everyone would endlessly congratulate me. Right? So who, how could I sit in that room by myself anymore and endure that level of depriva deprivation anymore? So there's this quote from Faulkner. <clears throat> I'll paraphrase it. But he, I think he said this after he won the Nobel Prize. But he said that if I can just show the back of my hand to fame, right? if I can just shun it, then maybe it will leave me alone and I'll be able to continue to get things done. You know, one of the most remarkable stories that's in the making right now, I don't know if you've been following the, uh, the newspapers on this, is about J.D. Salinger. And J.D. Salinger, of course, uh, you know, a, another very great American writer, um, most famous for Catcher in the Rye, I'm sure you all know, Franny and Zoe, um, and then became a, a, a recluse. And, you know... Not, not such a recluse, 
meaning to say he sort of retreated to Connecticut and he had his circle of people and everyone understood the deal. If he's friends with you, you don't talk about it to anybody, right? So he had a community, but everyone kept his secret and no one talked about him to anyone else at all. So he was sheltered. But there were, there were people he communicated with and, and, and interacted with on a regular basis for decades. Okay. So now a, a, a new documentary about him is about to come out. He's been dead now for a couple of years. And they say there are five more books coming out. Now, this is... Th there is no parallel to this in, in the history of literature, as far as I know, certainly in American letters, where an author at the top of the top of the top of his game disappeared, continued to write in seclusion at the top of his game. And they say that they're going to be doling them out over the next several years. And these are going to be, that this, this it's unparalleled. So, so this is all going back to our goals. You see, Rebbe, Rebbe Nachman says that at each level of intellectual attainment, a person has to realize that they know nothing. Now, this is very, very hard because it's sort of like someone sticks a check for a million dollars in your pocket and you're saying, at that moment that you receive the check, you have to say, I'm totally broke. It's hard to do because at your new level of intellectual attainment, all of a sudden your intellectual and spiritual vistas have been widened. At that moment, how are you supposed to experience total ignorance? But, but a person needs to, and, and just so you're following the connection, I'm talking about shunning fame, so to speak. Like not being um, seduced by your own growth so that you're able to continue to go further and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. So that's what I'm saying before, that, that at the moment that you have a goal in mind, that's an accomplishment to have even have thought of trying to do such a thing. That's an accomplishment to have a goal. But now, a person has to pretend that that, that doesn't exist anymore. Like at your new level of attainment, you have to realize that you know nothing because God is infinite. We can never fully know God. So it's true, right? They say the goal of wisdom is to forever realize how much you don't know in increasingly wider measures. Rip Shlomo put it this way, in a very concrete way, if you want to hold on to this thought in a very concrete way. One of the most beautiful things I ever heard him say. I, I asked him a question. I said, it was in the context of how can a person um, maintain their spiritual fire, their inspiration, as it becomes more the routine of their life? Okay, bless you. So what he said was that each new piece of information that a person learns, they have to treat it like a single puzzle piece where they don't have the rest of the pieces of the puzzle. Now, just, we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more in a moment, but hear the brilliance of that. You see, remember I said, someone sticks a check for a million dollars in your pocket, and at that moment you're supposed to say, I'm broke? How, how do you do it? That, that seems impossible. That probably is impossible, by the way. 
But Reb Shlomo is refining the metaphor a million times over. Much better metaphor. And he's saying the following. Each new piece of information you receive is like one piece of, pu- of, of a puzzle, of a jigsaw puzzle, that you don't have the rest of the pieces for. Which means, now that I have a piece of this puzzle, I've attained something, because I now have something that I didn't have before. So that's good. But simultaneously, I'm aware of the larger context that's lacking. So there's attainment and simultaneously humility at the same time. There's knowledge and knowledge of ignorance, of the greater ignorance by far, at the same time. And that's the perfect balance. All right, now I want to, so just to review that point, then we're going to go on to another point. Just to review that point, Look at your goals and realize at this point it's not just enough to have them anymore. What is your actual plan? Okay? All right. Because otherwise you're just copying yourself. And that's old age. Right? And what are we saying that resurrection of the dead is? That's, that's, that's eternal life. That's the opposite of old age. Okay. So now I'm very... Privilege to, I started learning a new Sefer, the Imre Noam, that's the Jikover Rebbe. Now that's the grandson of the Ropshitzer Rebbe. I'm, I'm, I'm just so happy to be learning this. And, um, and one of the things that he was, is, a, is just, a, just a, one of the world-class masters of is, is Gamatria. And this is now going back, you know, you know over a hundred years. Um, and so let me... Uh, let me share this, this thought with you. There, there, are two, um, there are two time periods. Um, there are two time periods during the year that are three weeks long. Okay? One of the time periods is what we call the three weeks. Right? And this is a sad time. That's, that's the time between the 17th of Tammuz and Tisha B'Av. Right? Where the, um, where the Holy Temple is destroyed. So that's... That's the, that, that's the sad three weeks. But the same number of days, believe it or not, exists in a different part of the calendar, and that's going from Rosh Hashanah to uh, Shmini Atzeris. That's another three weeks. And those three weeks are absolutely joyous. Right? That's just filled with holidays. So these three weeks are counteracting the other three weeks. What we do these three weeks are sort of like guarding us and protecting us with, with merits and with goodness and with light against the darkness of the other three weeks. Okay? Now, how do you see this in Gematria? See it in a very interesting way. So, Bilaam, Bilaam, remember, who's one of the arch-villains of history, and remember, it says, Kabbalistically speaking, Bilaam is the reincarnation of Lovin. Lovin was the one who tried to wipe out Jacob and the whole family of Israel before it kind of got off the ground. And they say that Lovin was the reincarnation of the snake from the Garden of Eden. Okay, so Bilaam's a bad guy. Bilaam is the one who advised Paro to kill and drown all the Jewish babies. So Bilaam's like, 
is really a, a, as low as you can get, okay? So now, Bilam is on his donkey. This is right before his donkey speaks, okay? And he's riding his donkey, like investigating the whole idea of cursing the Jewish people. He's just been approached with a, an offer from Balak, the king of Moab, and, um, and the, the, uh, the donkey stops. And Bilam doesn't know why the donkey stopped. And if you look at the Rashi there, it says, well, actually, the Pusik says that there was an angel that stood before the, the, uh, the, um, the donkey with a sword in his hand. And now here's something very interesting. Look at the Rashi there. It says, what kind of angel was that? It says it was an angel of Rachamim, an angel of mercy. So that's, that's interesting. So you have an angel of mercy stopping Bilaam, who's on his way to try to figure out how he can work it out with God to curse the Jewish people, and an angel of mercy is standing in his way to stop him. And by the way, we read about Bilaam during the dark three weeks. Okay? So now here's the positive three weeks. We're blowing the chauffeur. Now, now, now listen to this. So, so the words, and an angel of God stood on the road. Right? That's, that's, that's from that phrase. Here's the whole passage. God's wrath flared because he was going, meaning because Bilaam was going to try to figure out how to curse the Jewish people. And an angel of Hashem stood on the road to stop him. Right? So, so the Jikover Rebbe in the Imre Noam points out that this phrase, that, um, that an angel stood on the road, Right, which in Hebrew, and this is uh, in, if you want to look it up, it's in Bamidbar, chapter 22, verse 22. Okay, that adds up, that phrase adds up to 861, which is the Gematria Rosh Hashanah. Meaning to say, on Rosh Hashanah, What's happening with the chauffeur blast and everything like that is we're creating with our good deeds angels that are going to stop all the evil that's trying to get us during the course of the year. Amazing, amazing gematria, right? And if you look actually in the Siddur, in the Moxer, it talks about in between the blowing of the shofar, it's saying that all the angels that were creating with the blowing of the shofar, it's making lots and lots of references to angels that are being created. So the Jikover Rebbe is, is, is tying that to this angel of mercy, which stopping all the billums of the world from getting to their destination. That these three weeks are giving us all the merit and the protection to stop us from all the bad symbolized by the other three weeks in the year. So, you know, you know, there's some times when it's sort of like when the market's good. And when the market's good, you want to do as much business as possible. I remember a very, very close friend told me that one time he was on the floor trading. I think he was trading oil. And he had a way to make money with each trade, and he couldn't move his hands fast enough in order to make the trades because the gates were absolutely open. 
And he was thinking, this is my children's education, this is my grandchildren's education, i got to go, got to move hands. You know? That's these ten days. That's these ten days right now. Right? The gates are open. And we can make all of these angels, so to speak, all these, you know, force fields of protection, all this schus, all this closeness with God that will shield us during the coming year. Um, okay, uh, just finish with um, one more thought, which is uh, every year ends with, um, you know, as we increase in the years, the, in Hebrew anyway, so we're in 5774. That's the, that's the new date, okay? So four in, in the Hebrew alphabet is Dalit. So in Israel, they always, like, they, they announce, the rabbis announce, like, what the, the, the last letter stands for. That's the first letter of this word. So I didn't hear what it is this year. I don't know what the Dalit stands for. I haven't heard what, what announcement was made that the Dalit stands for. But I had another thought, which is that we're going from 5773 into 5774. And everyone's always concentrating on the, the last number, since that's the new number. So we're going from Gimel, right? Three is Gimel. We're going from Gimel to Dalit. And in Gomorrah, uh, in Gomorrah Shabbos, the, the, the Talmud analyzes not just the letters themselves, but the flow of the letters. And the Talmud actually makes a big deal about the transition from the letter Gimel to the letter Dalit, what that means, okay, in the Aleph base. And so I'd like to apply it to the years that we're in right now, since we're going from, the, from Gimel to Dalit, from 5773 to 5774, from Gimel to Dalit. And what it says in the Gomorrah is that the Gimel actually stands for, this is the Talmud speaking, Gimelut Chasadim, which means to do kindness for others, to do kindness. Dalit stands for the person who's lacking. So in other words, Gimel into Dalit means that Dalit is receiving the divine flow of the great giver. So Hashem should bless us in this year, 5774, the year of Dalit, that we should be able to receive the bounty from above and that God should bless all of us with all of our, our the fulfillment of all of our needs and that we should celebrate together. Yeah.